Welcome back to the Queer Circle Podcast, where queer healers share their journeys and what they tell their younger selves. Today's guest is Bumi B. Patel, a queer artistic director for Patel Dance Works in the Bay Area, California. Bumi directs a company that creates immersive performance works at the intersection of embodied research and activism. Welcome to the Queer Circle, Bumi. I always like to tell people that I was named according to the position of the stars at the exact time of my birth. Um, That's a really poetic way to talk about um, how, at least in the form of Hinduism that my family follows, um, as soon as a child is born, a priest um, maps out their star chart. And based on the position of the stars and the planets, um, the parents are given the first syllable of the child's name. And from there can choose, you know, what to name their child. And my name, Bhumi, um, in Sanskrit means the sacred land. Um, and I feel like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm a Pisces. So there's a lot of like water and like floating that happens, but like, I turn to my name and it's this like groundedness, um, in the, in the earth. Um, and in addition to that, I was the only person in my nuclear family and even maybe my extended family that was born in Florida. Um, Both of my parents were born in India. Both of my older sisters were born in New Jersey, which is where my parents um, emigrated. And yeah, so there there is this little bit of outlierness in my family. And so I've always, like as a queer person, as the youngest child, there's, there's always been this kind of like slightly outside feeling. Um, and both of my sisters are, it feels like there's a big gap between us. One sister is six years older. One is nine years older. And so there, that gap feels so significant because there's only three years between the two of them. And so growing up, sometimes I felt like I had like two great mentors in my life. Um, and other times I, I felt like an only child, Um, because they were just at very different stages in their lives. Growing up, I was definitely one of very few South Asian kids that I was around. Um, My mom would take me to temple and I don't, I don't know if it was like a generational thing or just the way things were timed up. There were no other kids that were my age. My mom had a lot of friends at the temple and they had kids that were, were either older um, around my sister's age, both of their ages, um, or younger. They had very young kids. And so I, and going to school, I didn't have any South Asian friends. Um, and so when I did find someone, it was like, do you want to be best friends? we have things in common. (laughs) And that's like, that's not how friendship works. You know, you can't build friendship off of like one point of identity. Um, 
but I, you know, coming into adulthood, I've always said, like, I've always felt kind of like an alien, like in the world, like, where do I fit? Where do I belong? Um, and in terms of my queerness, like that was one way of starting to figure out like how I belong in the world and how the choices that I make can be really different from what um, expectations are. And um, I, I came into my queerness when I was in college, but I look back now and I think about things like being a very over-invested ally in my high school's GSA, like a very, very invested ally. Um, and it's like, mm, you weren't an ally, girl. Come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I, I went to a historically women's college. Um, I feel like there's not a great way to, to explain that it was a school where there were no like cis straight men. Um, you know, I had lots of friends who are across the gender spectrum. Um, but yeah, right now they call themselves a historically women's college with trans inclusive policies. Um, kind of inelegant, but that's what I've got right now. Um, and I, yeah, I came out when, or came out in college. I didn't really come out. It was just like, here it is. This is a new person that I'm dating. These are my politics. Um, and I sometimes, I don't feel guilty about it, but I witness and hold how many people have had really traumatic experiences of coming out and how hard it has been. And like in a lot of ways, feel really grateful that at least internally, there wasn't a turmoil about it, or there wasn't, um, I, I didn't experience a lot of shame or worry that my relationships were going to be harmed by it. And um, I, I felt like the people that were closest to me, I trusted enough that like when I expressed to them that I was dating someone or that I felt this way, that it wasn't um, like our relationships weren't going to be questioned. And I know a lot of people go through that. And so I, yeah, I, I think about that a lot and I don't feel like I had like a stigma or shame. It just, it felt like a fact of existence and that was, you know, that was one step in figuring out how to address that alien feeling. And then when one comes out as queer, as like queer and brown and femme, there are other things to navigate in feeling alien. Like in queer communities, sometimes I feel like, well, I'm not a, like a skinny masculine of center white person um so how do I fit into this queer world and I don't know I think I'm still figuring that out and finding the the, the places and the relationships that I belong to
there there are so many people that I could <laughs> that I could um, talk about or think about. What who first comes to mind as a mentor and hero is my eighth grade English teacher. Um, her name is Miss Hines. Uh, I don't know what she's doing now, but I think about her sometimes because her class was so different from any English class I had been in prior to that class. We had all of these amazing <clears throat> creative projects um, that allowed all of us to explore one really like loving English, like loving the class and finding different modes of expressing ourselves. Um, I think back to a project, it might've been an end of year project or something like that, but it was in a few different sections. And one of the sections was to write in a form of prose um, and that could be, she was so open. She like, we, we could choose what we wanted to do there. We could, um, write about a book that we had read. We could write our own story. We could, um, interview someone if we wanted to, we could write a news article about something we had heard about. Um, and then there was another section that was, um, for poetry or writing songs or, you know, um, being creative in that different sort of way. And I remember in eighth grade, um, you know, I didn't have the language for it then, but I look back and like, I was very depressed. Um, I, I was extremely depressed in middle school. And I remember I, I wrote all these poems that were like, at the time I thought, oh, I'm just being like angsty and emo. Um, and she pulled me aside and she said, like, I can see how much pain you're in, in the writing that you have submitted. And I don't know who or what in this world is causing you to feel this much pain, but I don't want you to feel this way forever. And I want to help you get the support that you need. Um, and I, I just think I, I hadn't up until that point had like a teacher see and witness me in that way. Um, because, you know, I said I was an over-invested ally. I was also an overachieving student up until that point. I was like, I always got straight A's, which is also part of the immigrant experience, um, or being a child of immigrants. And I did really well in classes and I helped other students and I tutored other students and, um, and this, this felt like the first time that a teacher saw me beyond those like markers of achievement. Um, and so that, that felt really profound. Um, I, I've also been a, I've loved reading my whole life. And so I feel like I had heroes and mentors in, in writers and characters. And as I've grown up, I've learned more about those people and how they can be problematic in the world and how, um, you know, they are out of values alignment with me, but I am still grateful for having had those books and those stories um, as a young person, even though I don't turn to them now. In fact, now I, 
I think it was in 2017, I decided I am not reading any white authors um, because I had had enough <laughs> in all of my life. And so now I, I only read um, BIPOC writers. Um, oh, and there's, there's one other person who was, who was a, a mentor. Um, when I was in college, we had a visiting professor. I studied uh, English creative writing um, and Natasha Trathaway, who then went on to be the U.S. Poet Laureate, which is amazing. Um, she did a visiting professorship and I took her class and she taught me so much about trusting myself and about trusting that my voice is important. Even if my voice didn't sound like what, what is considered part of the canon. Um, and I remember she, she was, she had written a book. Um, she's written several, but she had written a book and it was coming out or maybe around the time that, um, the, the class was, and I went to the reading on campus and she signed the inside of it for me and I still have it. And it says something like, um, for Bumi, in honor of all of the work that women do, um, or in honor of women's work, something like that. And it was, yeah, I just, I had such a profound experience in her class, um, in learning how to honor and trust, um, my voice and my work and who I am in my writing, that it doesn't have to be someone else. One of the harder and darker times of the journey that I've been on is um, a period of time when I broke both of my legs. Um, this was about eight years ago now, almost eight years. We're coming up on that, that anniversary. Um, and it was while I was in a graduate program for dance um, and like the tremendous amount of pain in that process, the physical pain of going through this healing, um, had, had an impact, a huge impact on how, how I have come to to want and need and utilize movement and dance as um, something that's healing and something that's liberating. Um, because even though I had, I came to, to know and accept and understand pain through movement, I also came to, out of necessity, know and understand joy and pleasure again. Um, and I, while I was going through recovery, started more intensely, um, doing an improvisational form of movement. The people who are practitioners of it would never call it improvisational, <laughs> but, um, 
but I, for, for this purpose, I will call it improvisational. Um, it's called Gaga and, um, and there, there are a lot of myths about where Gaga came from. Um, but one that is often talked about is the person who sort of found it or, um, started it had a spinal injury and he was trying to find the ways that he could move with pleasure because so much was pain. Um, so even, even if it was the smallest movement of fingers or, you know, like just like the deepest internal microscopic movement, there, there has to be a way to find pleasure again. Um, yeah. And so I think like relearning my body and relearning proprioception where my body is in space, um, relearning things like balance and, um, how to walk. I was in physical therapy for a long time, just like learning how to have a, whatever normal means, but a normal gait, <laughs> um, how to take steps forward, how to take steps backwards. Um, and, and that was, you know, it was very hard on my mental health. I, I felt like prior to that, I, the thing that I did when I didn't feel good was I danced. I went and took class. I went to a rehearsal. I like that. Those were my coping tools and those were gone um, because I couldn't do them in the same way. And so that adjustment of how, how do I do this thing that I know feels good, that I know was a coping mechanism that I can't do in the same way anymore. How do I do it and refine that pleasure, that joy, that excitement, the, the feeling of flight. That's something I love about dance. Like I love jumping and I love traveling through space because there are these moments of suspension where you feel like you're flying. Um, and I, I feel like that experience really led me to reevaluating, um, reevaluating what I am, what I do as a mover and how that, that part of my life can be healing and how can I give that to other people? Um, and how can I, how can I even change the landscape and the culture of, of dance? Because when I was in pain, I started to learn about how many other people just live with pain especially how many dancers and choreographers just live with pain as, as a natural part of being in the profession. And, and to me, that didn't seem right. That, that doesn't seem right. Um, so, so how do we do it differently? How do we, even if, even if different, because dance and movement can be a, a profession that is hard on the body. Um, it can be, but how do we, make the choices and make the effort to remain in pleasure and in joy and do it in a way that brings us those things.
I think sometimes we live in a society that separates the brain from the body and the body is the brain. The brain is the body. They're, they're so deeply connected and, and finding those connections and living wholly every day, every minute in that connection, not just in the dance studio, um, but getting into my car in a way that is embodied, getting out of the shower in a way that I know where my body is and I feel where it is. Um, it's just, I think, a, diff a different way of living. I think a pitfall and setback for so many people, including myself, and I, I don't mean to sound like a caricature of an activist or something like that, but late stage capitalism, constantly it's constantly a setback. Um, and this idea that we have to like constantly be productive is a setback because sometimes slowing down, stopping, resting, not doing anything at all um, is a mode of healing. And I, I also often think about how I reflect on it as an adult that I grew up in poverty, but I didn't know that that was what was going on around us because of, because of my parents. I, I mean, I think um, because they were good at masking it because they didn't want other people to know um, whatever, whatever the reason was there, I just think that they were, they were good at not at least letting me and my sisters know. Um, and as I talked about before, breaking both my legs was, was a loss. And I also think about, I think about living my true queerness as a loss, not as a setback or a pitfall, but a loss of a loss of like meeting certain expectations. Um, and I I don't know how far it extends from like the South Asian immigrant community, but I suspect it does. Um, the, the expectations of heteronormativity, um, the expectation of, of getting married very young and, and having kids, um, the expectations that my career would fall into one of three categories, doctor, lawyer, engineer, um, which I think uh, I, I want to imagine that a lot of children of immigrants might, might have that shared experience. Um, and these, these are expectations that aren't reflections of actual lived experience, which sort of relates back to growing up in poverty and like the overall difficulty of um, economically changing your class status um, in the society that we live in. And I, I kind of grapple with this all the time because on the one hand, it's such a privilege to be seen in that category of this model minority, which we all know is a myth and is not true at all. Um, but there is this expectation to succeed. 
but so many of the people that I know that are in this model minority category and that have come into success have had that model to them, have had parents who are doctors, lawyers, engineers, and that's why that expectation has been set forth for them. And I love my parents very much and they are both working class people and I am a working class person. Um, they benefited from coming to the U.S. during the like wave of immigration that set up this um, model minority that set up um, anti-Blackness in POC communities. And they both also lacked the educational privilege to fulfill that, that expectation. Um, and so it's, it's complicated, but all of that has sort of been a loss, like let, letting go of those expectations and knowing that I'm not going to fulfill them. And that when cousins and aunts and uncles ask why I'm not a doctor, I don't have to give them a reason. I don't have to explain it to them. I, I don't have to feel guilty even. Um, yeah, that, that loss, um, I carry it with me but I don't think it, I don't think it like drives the bus of my life anymore. Finding peace and acceptance is an ongoing journey. Um, I think some days are better than others. I, I still experience a lot of self-doubt. I still experience the voices in my head um, that RuPaul might call my inner saboteur. Um, saying that I'm not good enough. They, they can be really loud at times. Um, but I think that I think that inherent self-worth is is certainly the goal. And um, you know, as, as a movement artist, as a dancer, as a choreographer, there is so much doubt and rejection. Um, and so like just remembering that my self-worth is not tied to the grant that I didn't get, the residency that I didn't get. It's easy to say it right now. And sometimes it's hard to remember that when I get three emails in one day from three different funding opportunities that are not accepted. <laughs> Um, but I, I try to remember, I know I said, I don't read white authors earlier, but I try to remember, um, a line from Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese, um, where she says, allow the soft animal of your body to love what it loves. Um, and I think that the, the peace and the acceptance comes most strongly when I allow myself to love what I love, like fully with my whole body, my whole self. Um, and to just know that if I, if I am making the choices that are most in alignment with my dignity, with my value system, with the ways in which I want to eventually be a good ancestor, a phrase that I get from Leila Saeed. Um, if I am living in that way, then it's okay. Um, 
And like I said, it's easier some days than others. <laughs> For me, making movement-based art is, is a knowing that has no explanation. And I think that it's, it has no explanation, so it's difficult to, to, to say it. But I, I try really hard to make the performances and the art that I have always wanted to see, whether that is through the themes and the content through representation, through unabashed queerness, unapologetic, uh, radicalness. Um, and I, I try to be a very vocal advocate for the things that I believe in and the things that I care about, because I think by being vocal, it, it allows other people, younger or older, it has nothing to do with age, but people who share those beliefs to see someone else echoing them and validating them. Um, I, in, I, I make performances and I also do a lot of writing. Um, and I always say that the reason that I, that I speak out about things that I view as injustices or things that I view as wrongs or things that I believe need to change is because I care and because I want to maintain the relationship. Wouldn't it be easier to say, this dance community is really messed up. There's a lot of racism and sexism and classism and ableism here. I'll just leave. But the act of saying, we can do better, we can, we, we have the tools as a community. And if you as an individual don't have those tools, we can come together and pool everything that we have and make a better future. Because change can happen on an individual level, but like long-term sustainable social and cultural change is a community demanding that we do better. And I, I hope that, I always hope when I write and when I create art that, that people can see the care and the love with which I say the difficult things um, because it, it, it would almost be easier to say, well, this is messed up, bye. I'll go somewhere else where it's not messed up and we can be an echo chamber over here <laughs> where we all know what our radical politics are together. Um, but to say, no, you and I have different beliefs, but let's figure out like how to make the world a better place together feels so important. Um, and sort of echoing back to like the, the thoughts about late, late stage capitalism I don't love working in a system of capitalism, but while I am, one of the biggest things that I feel like I have 
tried to bring back to the to the dance community at least as an offering is that dancers must be paid for the labor that our bodies are doing and as a as a young dancer i was in so many situations where one i didn't know if i was getting paid for a job or two i was getting a stipend that for the amount of time that i put into the the work that was being presented i was getting paid like a dollar an hour or something like that and and that's that's not the world that i want to live in and so you know i talked about the rejections of grants and funding and residencies and things like that but part of the reason i keep doing it is because i know that every time even the smallest amounts of funding come in, they go directly to the artists that I'm working with. Because if I can't model the thing that I am asking of other dance companies, of other dance organizations, of other presenters, then I'm not really living the values that I hold. Um, and the, the last thing I'll say is I have been working with a, a collaborative cohort of artists um, called Dancing Around Race. And it really has been like a hub, a place to openly and with, with generosity and compassion, but also frankness, talk about the issues of equity. And in, in the title is Dancing Around Race, but I think we really try to, try to encapsulate all of the ways in which injustice exists in the dance community. Um, and I hope that, I hope that more conversations like that are happening. I don't feel any sort of, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but like proprietariness over being a group of people who are demanding equity. I hope everyone forms a group and starts demanding equity because that's it's important. It's what we need in the world. Um, I don't need to be the only one doing it. No one needs to be the only one doing it. We have to do it together. You know, something that I, I'll say this because it's something that I remind myself of every day, that everyone is doing the best they can, that everyone is doing what seems most reasonable to them most of the time. And I am too. If I could tell my child self something based on what I know today, it is, it is to talk to the people that you trust when you feel deeply sad, when you feel pain, when you feel joy, when you feel confused, when you feel overwhelmed. Because even even if you feel like their perception of you is that you have it together, that you feel safe and cared for and well-fed and <laughs> mentally well, they will receive you and they will hold the space that you need. Um, I'll also say that you'll, you'll be loved. You are loved. And I know that I know that you worried a lot about 
about being alone, about being lonely. And you will find where you belong. You'll maybe still feel a little bit like an alien, but you'll find other people who also feel like aliens. And <laughs> you can all you can all be aliens together. And that's all right. Because it's okay to be different. And it's okay to be exactly who you are. And it's okay to it's okay to to rock the boat. It's okay to ask the difficult questions. It's okay to say the difficult feeling. Thanks for joining us in the Queer Circle, Boomi. To learn more about Boomi's work, check out their website, pateldanceworks.org or go to QueerCirclePodcast.com for this information and more. Music from today's episode provided by Purple Fluorite, streamed anywhere music is found.